Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. So sometimes my wife will call me a robot, half jokingly, but like half seriously too, because I'm not great at like accessing my feelings and communicating them and doing all that stuff. You know, feels weird to even talk about it here, but I'm trying to get better at it. Anyway, today on the pod, we've got two books that mine that realm of figuring out your own feelings and the dangers of shielding yourself from them. In a bit, we'll hear about a novel about a doctor written by an actual doctor that gets into what life is like when actual human suffering is just part of your job every day. But first, back in 2019, NPR's Scott Simon talked to the author Basi Ikbi about her book, I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying. It's an essay collection about mental health and her bipolar disorder, and they have this real touching and honest conversation about what it's like to go to bed at night thinking about how it'd be easier if you just didn't wake up in the morning, but why it's important to, as she puts it, allow yourself morning. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Bussy Ickby's I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying has phrases that can stop and startle you. Here's just one. My mother loves and hates and heals and hurts with the same hands. The noted spoken word artist has written a book of essays that perform a memoir. Childhood moments in Nigeria, adolescence in Oklahoma, abuse at home, what she calls the pain and fog of a bipolar disorder, and her hard work to make a real life for herself. Basi Ikbi, the author of I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying, joins us from our studios in New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin with another arresting phrase early in the book. The lie I tell the most is, I'm okay. Did you have to tell that to survive? Do you still have to say it now? Absolutely. As open as I am about where I am with my emotional and mental health, I still think that the the easy answer of, I'm okay, helps alleviate any guilt or pressure for other people to try and make me feel better. Um, I often say it out of consideration. I'm hyper aware, especially now, that the people in my life are very worried about me. And Mm -hmm. in order for me to just sort of get through my day without having to worry about worrying them, I'm okay is the the easy and accessible answer. Help us understand uh, an episode in your life you write about, which I don't know might be a, a, a an early sign of what you were going to wind up contending with, like a lot of other school children, really around the world that day in the 1980s. Yes. You saw the U.S. space shuttle blow up in the sky. You seemed to blame yourself. I did. For some reason, watching the shuttle um, explode, one of the things that I did was I was so excited by it, and I was looking forward to it so much that when it started the ascension, I looked away, and then when I looked back, that's when it exploded. And for some reason, my brain connected that the fact that I was so excited that mm. I chose my own excitement over 
whatever safekeeping measures that I could have had had I kept. I mean, it's, you know, saying it out loud, it seems ridiculous. But as a child, it it made so much sense. And and seeing the, the amount of pain and despair and just sadness that filled the classroom, it just entered my body and made me feel like I could have done something to not only protect the people who didn't survive that that explosion, but also the people around me. My teacher, if she fell over, would I be able to pick her up? Can I help Jennifer get over this? Can I help, you know, Timothy get over this? I read your book on a plane. I was very moved by it. I got to a line where you told a therapist, opening my eyes every morning is a disappointment. And I thought, oh, no, this this is not going to wind up well. What did you have to do? Um... Another phrase in the book is allow yourself mourning. That's yeah, I love that phrase. Yeah, that's that's all I could do. I could only give myself the next day because I I had to believe somehow knowing that it had gotten better in the past that it would get better again. I was running out of ways to to create the better. I was running out of ways to accept the mornings. I'd fall asleep at night thinking, okay, the morning is better. It's just, it has to be better. But I would open my eyes, hoping that I would, you know, pass away in my sleep. Like, it would just make it easier on me just not to wake up. Um, In the book, I also write about my first hospitalization for passive suicidality, which basically just means you've lost the will to live. And that's what I was experiencing. I would wake up, my eyes would open, and I would see, you know, whatever it is, I the last thing I saw before I fell asleep, and I would feel this deep, this this deep sigh, like, wow, again, you know, um, and I just had to keep moving through those days. And being able to say that to that therapist for the first time was so significant because I hadn't even really admitted that to myself. How, how does that affect the way you live? Are there certain kinds of people that you, you have to avoid, certain activities, certain foods, certain drinks? Yeah, it's just a matter of, of boundaries when it comes to people. That's something that I've had to learn very quickly over the uh, the last year, knowing that because I've stated that I need certain things to take care of myself, it's not a slight against anybody else. It's not. People tend to take it very personally when you say, I can't talk about this thing or I can't be involved in this other thing. I have to be very careful being around people who are very negative because that affects the way that I see the world around me. Like that bad boyfriend you read about? Yes. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Yes, exactly like that. What, exactly what like was that. your phrase? We were together for four months? About? I was with him for four years, oh. but I don't know how long he was with me. <laughs> <laughs> You've written a brilliant memoir. Thank you. Did you ever worry that getting better might dull your brilliant insights? The easy answer is yes. But I've told myself countless times and I've told others, it's not romantic. It's it's torturous. I would trade every so-called talent I have for a brain that mends and processes things the way that it was meant to. I would trade it. Uh, It's not worth it for me. I think a lot of creative people who live with mental illness create despite the illness and not because of it. As far as volume goes, as someone who was you know, an insomniac and hypomanic, you know, I can write 47 essays in one evening, but only one of them would be any good. And then when I'm uh, healthy, I can still write that one good essay. It just without the 46 other ones around it. 
You know what I have to ask, don't you? No. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I am the healthiest that I have ever been in my entire life, and I I can say that that has been the case for the longest I've ever been in my entire life, which is about a year and a half. I went through one of the worst, if not the worst, depressive episodes I've ever had three years ago. Um, when I started writing portions of this book, I didn't expect to make it. So a lot of the stories that I told were very deliberate. There were letters and notes to my family and my friends because I, I thought that there would be no more mornings for me. And um, the fact that I'm sitting here three years later with a collection of essays I wrote through, you know, very difficult times in my life with proof that I made it through those times and as healthy as I possibly can be at this moment. I feel fantastic, and I'm grateful. Thank you for asking. <laughs> well, thanks for writing this. Uh, Basi Ipke, her memoir, I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Anna DeForest's new book, A History of Present Illness, gets into some of the occupational hazards of being a doctor. On the one hand, being dispassionate allows you to make certain decisions that might be difficult otherwise. On the other hand, as she tells NPR's Aisha Roscoe, to be fully disconnected is to stop seeing your patients, yourself, and the next generation of doctors as people. Existential thoughts on what it means to live and die and the inequities of the medical system. These questions nag at the narrator of a new novel, a young unnamed woman who starts her medical training healing others, only to uncover wounds in herself. All this happened, more or less. I've seen a beating heart in a wide open chest. This place has been a miracle land. No one even dies until we let them. That's Anna DeForest with a line from her new novel, her first, called A History of Present Illness. She's a neurologist and palliative care physician, in addition to being an author, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I wanted to ask you about this unnamed narrator. Um, she's trying to treat people, but she's also struggling with not just the long hours and the hard work, but with the very nature of the medical profession. The early aspects of medical training, it's funny, but they really are an indoctrination. Um, you're not just learning science, you're learning a different way of being a person. The way that you're learning is in this system that is phenomenal, necessary, and good, which at the same time is a really toxic environment. Anyone who's been in a hospital can tell you it's not the best place in the world when it comes to being treated like a human being. Almost to be a human being would be to try to like run away from suffering, I think is very human. But to run towards suffering, that's kind of not what I think of as a regular human aspect. Is that like a key thing here? That is. That's, and it's so well put because I see the book 
it's ostensibly about a kind of occupational training, but what it's really about to me is suffering and about how do we attend to suffering. To look away is the most natural thing in the world, but it's, it's an impulse that we all have to overcome if we want to make the world less awful. The heart of this book is the question, what if you didn't? I, I feel like part of what this book is, is she's going through dealing with these patients. Some of them are, are very hopeless. And so how do you acknowledge or do that in a way that could ever be satisfactory? For me, before I ever thought about going into medicine, I had an almost pathological preoccupation with the frailty of the body. I was terrified of dying. And because I had this preoccupation, then the best thing to do, it's counterphobic, right, is to just get closer to it. And that's what medical training came to be for me, a way of showing myself, like teaching my body that death is okay. Mm. So there are a lot of deaths that aren't, but the fact that we die is okay is something I wanted to learn and I'm starting to. Is that what the narrator is also coming to terms with? Like the narrator does not come from a privileged life. Her mother's an alcoholic. It was a very unstable home. There's this scene where they're, they're twins born by cesarean section and she doesn't seem to know or really seem to care if they lived or died. Was it a result of her trauma or is it medical training to be dispassionate? Do you have to become disconnected? The question of how disconnected do you need to be to perform the job of a physician is one that really presses on me. A lot of older physicians will tell people considering medical school, don't go into this profession. It's it's an impossibly difficult, not the science, but the daily workload and the difficulty of being presented with this volume of suffering in this bureaucratic system of American healthcare that's kind of separately a nightmare. And then those of us who do anyway, uh, we're here and trying to figure out, can I suffer with the suffering and still be their doctor? And it's a hard line to find. But we swing very far in the direction of, of being cold, I think, because we feel like we have to or we're afraid of what will happen to us if we don't. Um, I had the privilege of being a fellow in hospice and palliative medicine the past year. I just finished in June where in our training, it's so embedded that we learn to recognize and process the emotional experiences that we have as we carry a large volume of patients who have really serious illnesses and many of whom die in our care. Um, learning to, to handle your feelings over time, I think, is so much easier than trying to avoid your feelings. You started writing this novel your third year in Columbia Medical School. That's a big deal being in Columbia. Then you entered your residency. What did you think of it when you went back to it? I wrote out a draft and I put it away. I thought this is like, <laughs> this is this is unpublishable is how I thought of it. Because it was so dark. It was so sad. And the question, like, what is the meaning of all of this suffering? I did not answer it. I still have not answered it. But by the time I was done with residency, I couldn't feel these things anymore. Partially because I was getting a little bit hardened inside and didn't have the time to, but you also, you just acclimate. It's an amazing thing that human beings do. We would have this experience sometimes in the neurology wards, the inpatient neurology service. Many of our patients are very, very confused. They have brain injuries or they've had strokes and they get out of bed a lot. 
So what, what we do is we, we tie them to their beds. And when the med students would rotate on our service, they would be horrified. And you, when you saw them see it, you would remember that, of course, it's horrifying. And so when I came back to this manuscript, it was like getting a letter from yourself through time. And it made me remember what it was like to feel those ways and to feel them again. And it was really almost medicinal to have that experience. Like I became a hybrid of my past and present selves. Is it possible that you can have like a system of medicine and it feel compassionate? Yeah, the system hurts a lot and it hurts a lot of people a lot. There's people who think about this on a systems level way and and I admire them deeply. My interventions tend to occur on the level of the individual. So you have two questions. Can you make doctors see their patients as humans? And can you give them the tools to know what to do with that information? Uh, the answer, I think, is yes, you can do it. And the ways that it's being done now, there's plenty of schools that work very hard to recruit non-traditional students into medicine. But we sometimes encounter things in American medicine where doctors have been driving medical care plans right up to the edge of what's possible. And then they have a case where a patient is certainly going to die. And then they lay out these options for the family to choose from in times when it's almost cruel to make a family choose that. The question is, like, do you want us to extubate him today and he'll die? Or we can keep him on a ventilator through a hole in his neck for a couple of more weeks and then he'll die. There are times when we abscond our responsibility to help. I, I want to go back to the, the line that you read about feeling like you're in control. Like, I mean, if you've seen a beaten heart and a, a wide open chest, you know, no one even dies until we let them, until you name it. How do you become a doctor without getting like a bit of a God complex. It's, it's really interesting about power. When I was a child in that environment, it was so disempowering. And even like being a 20 something who was adjuncting and trying to publish short stories, so disempowering. And when I got into medical school, my life really changed and it continued to change as I succeeded through all the different hoops they made me jump through. And now done with my training, I realized something about power, which is that it's not a feeling. It's the, it's the absence of obstacles. It doesn't even occur to you. You don't even notice how powerful you are when you're truly powerful. It's just as though the world rolls out in front of you. And once I realized that, I was really horrified. <laughs> because if it's not a sensation, like how do we teach people who have power that that they have to be cautious in how they wield it, that they don't deserve it, that disempowered people deserve what they have, and it's a mystery why some people get and some people don't. It just takes a lot of humility. It's a humbling work, medicine. That's Dr. Anna DeForest. Her new novel is A History of Present Illness. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookofthedaday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Nino Rao with help from Mason Tran and edited by Megan Selvin. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Rina Advani, Mark Rivers, Tim B. Ermias, Gabriel Sanchez, Christopher Antagliata, Elena Burnett, Jong Yoon Han, Matthew Shorman, Ed McNulty, and Denise Guerra. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.